You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. We've recently, as a church, been able to finish our study, our multi-year study in the book of Matthew. Today, we'll be doing a one-off message in the book of James. James, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd love for you to turn to that book. It's a small book near the end of your Bible. It's just five small chapters. Because we're diving in without any real context, I want to give you a little bit of history. What are we talking about? What is James? Where are we? So James is a book that was written by James, the brother of Jesus, actually. He was a religious leader in the city of Jerusalem. And his audience that he was speaking to, we're told this in James 1.1, are the 12 tribes are scattered abroad. The 12 tribes, speaking of Israel, his audience was primarily Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians, they were both in Jerusalem, but also scattered abroad due to persecution that they had been experiencing, both at the hands of the religious leaders of the day that had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, and also by the Roman government. These were people that had to leave their homes because of persecution that they were experiencing. Now, when we think about moving away, that's something that many of us do often in our lives. I don't know how many times Nozomi and I have moved around. It hasn't been that big of a deal. Being in Miami, there's people that are constantly moving in and out of Miami. So we don't think of it as that big of a deal. Back in biblical times, the time that we're talking about during the early church, it was a massive deal to move. Your community, your support system, your job, everything that you knew was in one place. So to leave that geographic location was to leave everything behind. Your safety, your friends, your relationships, your finances, everything. James, as he's starting the book, James is an extremely practical book. He speaks to how we should live our lives. In chapter one, he speaks to trials. He speaks to trials not in a theoretical sense as, hey, some, at some point in your life, you're going to experience these things, and it's going to be tough, so I'm going to give you a couple pointers to keep in mind when you get to those trials. Remember his audience, he's speaking to people that are very much living in trials right now, either they themselves or people that they're close to. So when James speaks to trials, that's a very real thing. It's a very practical thing. It's a reality that they're living in in that moment. In our lives, when we have trials and we seek to get counsel or advice or encouragement from our friends, a lot of times we might give counsel. It sounds like, yes, I know it's hard right now, but just power through. It won't be like this forever. This will end. It will change. Sometimes we might even say, get away from that. Whatever hard is going on in your life right now, You need to do anything you can in your power to make that stop as soon as possible. James's advice to his audience is neither of those things. James says in verse 2 that we should count it all joy when we fall into trials. Count it all joy. I don't know about you, in my trials, in my life, I usually don't count them as joy, especially not all joy to actually enjoy that process of being in trials. How and why is James able to say, count it all joy when you're in trials? James says it's because of what we look forward to. Through the trials, they produce steadfastness in us that keeps us. God uses trials in our life that keep us 
so that we can be perfect and complete, wanting nothing. That perfection, that completion is not to be experienced in this world. It's in the world to come. To be in heaven with our Savior forever glorified, where all tears are wiped from our eyes, where there's no grief, there's no loss, there's no pain, there's no sorrow. Everything is complete satisfaction. That is the subject matter that James is touching on in chapter 1. Verses 2 through 4. 5 through 11, he talks about some other things parenthetically, and then again, he circles back around to this main theme of trials in verses 12 through 15. So like we're on a road trip in a car, and we see this scenic overpass, I want us to stop at the scenic overpass of verses 12 through 15, get out of the car, and take a look around for a little bit during our time here this morning. Again, if you have your Bible with you, James 1, I'd love to read verses 12 through 15 with you to get started. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Verse 15, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The first point that I want us to look at here in verse 12, I'm entitling, embrace the grind, receive the crown. Embrace the grind, receive the crown. As we mentioned before, James is double-clicking on this idea that trials are good for us. Before in verses two through four, he says they're good for us because they complete us. They make us perfect, lacking nothing. They're not something that we should run away from. They're something that we should lean into. Verse 12, he tells us that actually the people that stay steadfast through trials are blessed. Why are we blessed to stay steadfast in trials? Well, he tells us there in verse 12, they will receive the crown of life. This crown of life, to make this a little bit more important for us, is not, it's not just a ring of gold on our head with jewels in it. The crown of life that he is talking about, again, is a future in heaven forever with him, with our Savior. If this does not get you excited as a Christian, you need to spend a little bit more time in our Bibles. It's not a reward that is monetary. It's not a reward that is precious jewels. It is a reward that is presence with our Savior forever. This is the crown of life that he is talking about. And through trials, God tests us to give us spiritual steel in our spines of faith so that we are able to remain steadfast through this life and get to that end, to receive that crown of life at the end. God does not use trials in our lives to check out who the real Christians are. As we're reading this verse, it can kind of sound like that. Like, okay, through this trial, I need to hold on so I can remain steadfast. And if I do that, then I'll prove my merit to God. I'll prove my worth to God. I'll prove my value to God, that I really have what it takes. And then when God sees that, 
then that crown of life is something I can receive. God does not need that information. He does not use trials to receive that information. He doesn't do that because he already has that information. He knows who is in him and who is not in him. You see, in our salvation, God is completely sovereign. God pursues us, God renews us, God sanctifies us, and God keeps us in that. There's nothing we can do to gain or to lose our salvation. And this is incredibly comforting. Romans 8, 38 and 39 tells us, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything that is of this world can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God does not use trials in our lives to see who the real Christians are and who are not the real Christians, then what is he using trials in us to do? What is he trying to accomplish? What is its purpose? His purpose with trials in our lives is to strengthen our faith by clarifying what we love. Trials in our lives clarify what we love. Again, look at verse 12 with me. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. He will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those that love him. So those that remain steadfast through trial will receive the crown of life. Those that love God will also receive the crown of life. There's an overlap here. These two groups of people are the same. Putting it another way, to remain steadfast in trial is to love God. We can reverse it. To love God means to stay steadfast in trial. Trials expose whether our commitment to him is genuine or not. We do not create our commitment in the midst of trials. God uses those trials to expose what is already there. How we should respond in these trials, our love for God in these trials being exposed, I can think of no better illustration than Job. Job is a man, if you're not familiar with the story, that was blessed in many ways. In any, in any way that you could measure wealth in his time, he had it all. He had lots of servants. He had thousands of livestock. He had a large family. He had property. He had wealth. He had reputation. He had everything. But Satan, when he saw Job and his commitment to God, He's like, yeah, if you take all those things away that he has, then his commitment to you, God, is also going to fall away. So God, in his permissive will, allowed those things to be taken away from Job. Job lost his livestock. Job lost all of his servants. Job lost his wealth. Job lost every single one of his children. And in the end, Job even lost his health. But as Job is sitting there, literally in sackcloth and ashes, scraping boils off of his skin with broken pieces of clay pottery, he responds with this. Job chapter 1 says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How is Job after he has just lost everything that he has, everything that he held dear has, is gone. Yet he is still able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. 
I think we find our answer later on in Job chapter 19, where he has these words to say. They'll be on the screen behind me. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. See, Job's hope was not in the things that he had. He loved those things. He enjoyed those things. But that is not where his hope was. His hope was in his Redeemer. His hope was in that crown of life that James is talking about in James 1. His hope was being made perfect and complete in the next life. So when the things that he had were taken away, his love was exposed through that trial. His love for God was exposed, and he was able to respond, blessed be the name of the Lord. That sounds good. But man, we do not always respond like Job in trial, do we? We are not always able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Takes us to our second point that we see here in our verses this morning, which is God is blameless. Again, remember who James's audience is. James's audience are Jewish Christians. These Jewish Christians have grown up in synagogue. They've grown up hearing stories about God. They've grown up studying doctrine. One of those doctrines would have been the sovereignty of God, God's control in all the circumstances in their life. And James, as he's writing this, he's in verse 13, he's correcting, he's anticipating and correcting a possible pushback from his audience. And their pushback would go something like this. Okay, if God is sovereign, if he has put these trials in my life and his will, I cannot push against that. It's going to happen whether I like it or not. Then also my responses to that, are those not also in his purview? And if they are, then I'm not responsible for them, am I? God has put these hard times in my life. He's in control of that hard time he's put in my life. And therefore, my response to it, he's also in control of, and it's not on me. James responds in verse 13. Read verse 13 with me. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. The first half of this verse is pretty easy to take. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. That's clear. Okay, so you're saying that it's not God's fault in here. But then what is James's argument? What is he trying to say with God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one? It's two parts. The first, God can't be tempted with evil. God cannot in any way be coerced or tempted into committing sin. His very nature is against it. He can't have anything to do with it. He doesn't want anything to do with it. He loathes it. He hates sin. He justly judges sin. God and sin are oil and water. They cannot mix no matter what is done. That's his first proposition. God can't be tempted with evil. So what follows is then God doesn't tempt anyone. Because God is never in any way associated with sin, he therefore doesn't tempt anyone to sin. He does not desire to bring about in man what he detests. He does not desire to bring about in man what he detests. The bottom line is this. God is never responsible for sin. God is never responsible for our sin, for your sin. Which begs the next question. If 
Our sin is not on God. Who is it on? James helpfully also answers this question. Which brings us to our third point. So we've looked at embrace the grind, receive the crown. Number two, God is blameless. Number three, desires out of check lead to death. Desires out of check lead to death. Read along with me verses 14 and 15. So God himself tempts no one, verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Verse 14, again, is somewhat easy to wrap our minds around. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Okay, own desire, that's my desire. That's where, sin, that's where temptation, sin, that's where it comes from. What is he saying here? There's no more blame game. We cannot blame sin on God. We cannot blame sin on others around us. We cannot blame sin on our circumstances. We cannot do what Adam and Eve did in the garden when confronted with their sin. It's the woman you gave me. It's the serpent that's here. It's your fault, God. All those excuses melt away in light of these verses. Temptation, we are drawn away of our own lust and enticed. Excuse me. Lust is King James Version. That's what's stuck in my head. Desire. When we don't like the trial and the test that we are going through, we are tempted to respond sinfully. Our response can't be blamed on God or anyone else. It's on us. Our sin is on us. Now, James goes into with verse 14 and 15, gives us a very unique look into this anatomy of temptation, really, is what it is. For our purposes this morning, I want to call it the life cycle of sin. So let's dive into these verses. Let's look at what this life cycle of sin is talking about. The first thing we see mentioned here is temptation. Temptation. This is the bait in the water. This is the worm on a hook in front of our face. Temptation comes in. Let's put a little bit of meat on these bones so that we can have some context and hopefully relate to these verses a little bit better so that they'll better apply. Temptation, a couple examples. Someone cuts you off in traffic. Your child responds to you disrespectfully. Your boss gives the credit for your project to someone else. An advertisement for a porn site or erotic novel pop up on your screen. These are examples of temptation. Sin has not happened. Sins later down the road. To be tempted is not to sin. We've all experienced these things or something like them. Maybe you're populating your mind right now with other examples of temptation that you experience on possibly a daily basis. This is temptation. Next, in our life cycle of sin, we see desire. Desire, interestingly enough, is also not sin at this point. Desires in and of themselves are not sin. Again, let's put meat to this. So let's link, the, let's link possible desires that you may have up with the temptations that we just gave as examples. Someone cuts you off in traffic. You have a desire for courtesy and kindness. Like, I don't think that's that big of a deal. I want people to be courteous. I want people to think about other people. Is that wrong to want other people to be kind and courteous to me? No, not in and of itself. That desire is fine. 
Your child responds to you disrespectfully. You have a desire for respect. These are my kids. I'm their parent. I take care of them. Should they not respect me? Doesn't God himself tell children to honor their mother and father in the Bible? So is it wrong to want to be respected by your children? No. Your boss gives credit for your project to someone else. You have a desire for affirmation and recognition. Is it wrong for someone to say, thank you for a job well done? I worked hard on that. I feel like I should receive recognition for that. Is it wrong to desire that? No, it's not. It's not. That desire is not sinful. An advertisement for a porn site or erotic novel pop up on your screen. You have a desire for sexual intimacy. Is it wrong to desire sexual intimacy? No, it is not. God has made us to be sexual creatures. It's part of how he, his perfect design for us. It is not wrong to desire sexual intimacy. So we have temptation, we have desire. Like, okay, how do, where does this thing turn? How does this go bad? Because you're telling me temptation isn't in and of itself sin. You're telling me desire isn't in and of itself sin. So does sin come in? That is our next step that James gives us here. But before we get there, again, these desires are not in and of themselves bad. But they are to be fulfilled in a God-honoring way. This is the trick right here. Our desires are to be fulfilled in a God-honoring way that ultimately find their full fulfillment in our relationship with God. Trials, again, to go back to verse 12, expose what we love. They expose what we love. So the question comes down to this. Will we submit our desires, our good desires that are not sinful, for comfort, for respect, for love, for friendship, for recognition, for security? Will we submit our desires to God, recognizing our desires can only have their full fulfillment in him? Or do we take matters into our own hands in that time of temptation, that time of testing or trial? And we say, no, I want this. My desire, I want this right here, right now, exactly the way I want it. That's the hinge on which this door swings. What we have is exposed. Will we choose to love God or will we choose to love ourselves and what we want? When desire has conceived, it brings forth sin. Sin is our next step. But this conceived deal. What does this look like? Desire has conceived. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James has used a very helpful word here. When we hear the word conceived, the first thing that comes to my mind is conception of a baby. For a baby to be conceived, there's a very specific order of operations, things that need to happen for that baby to be conceived. We're not going to do a biology lesson here. However, suffice it to say, you can't sit on a toilet seat in a public restroom and get pregnant. It doesn't work like that. Things have to happen for that conception to take place. Our sin in the same way works. Temptation can come in and entice our sinful nature, but it's only when we decide to act on the temptation that it becomes sin. Again, temptation comes in, we have this desire that is not necessarily bad, but then we have a choice then, how are we going to respond to this temptation with our desire? In our actions, when we choose to dwell on that, we choose to entertain that temptation, 
That is when it turns into a sinful desire. And those actions that we're talking about, these can be in our mind, they can be just thoughts, or they can be actions. Either way, we can sin. Jesus was very clear about this in the Sermon on the Mount. To be angry is just as much of a sin as to murder someone. To lust on someone is the same as adultery. These sins can be done in our thoughts as well as in our actions. But again, our desires can only be fulfilled fully in God. And that is one of the things that God is trying to show us in these trials. He's trying to expose what we love. Do we love ourselves to the point where we are going to use our desires to glorify ourselves? Or in that desire, in that temptation, in that moment, are we going to submit our desires to the will of God and our love for him? Again, to go back to our four examples that we were talking about before, to put a little bit of meat on these bones so that we can hopefully get it. Again, that first temptation of traffic. We have a desire for courtesy and kindness. This world is broken. And to expect kindness from it is wishful thinking. But God is loving and kind toward us. We receive the kindness and the love that we desire from our Heavenly Father. Our child is disrespectful. We have a desire for respect we need to remind ourselves that our identity is found in Christ. We don't need respect from other humans. When we receive it, is it good? Can we enjoy that? Yes. But ultimately, our identity, our recognition is found in Christ and who we are in Him. Now, just to clarify with our children, when they're disrespectful, that doesn't mean that we roll over and we say, no, that's fine, you can disrespect me because I know that I have my identity in Christ. That doesn't sound biblical. Again, we talked about earlier, God commands children to obey their parents, to honor their father and mother. But our motivation in correcting our children is completely different. Instead of our motivation being, I need to correct you so that I get the respect that I deserve here, we say, dear child, this is not God's will for you. This behavior is not what God has for you. And we correct them through the Bible with our end motivation being the glory of God, not us to get what we want in that moment. The credit goes to someone else, we have a desire for affirmation, recognition. We live for the recognition of God. God knows all things. He doesn't miss anything. We do it for his glory. We work hard for his glory. Is it good when we get a thank you? Is it good when we get a pat on the back, when we get a promotion at work? Absolutely. But when that is missing, we don't sin to get it. We don't go on a campaign to destroy the career of our boss who wronged us. We know that ultimately God knows. The ad for the porn site or the erotic novel, we have a desire for sexual intimacy. Again, God has made us as sexual creatures, but he has made us as sexual creatures to enjoy intimacy in a prescribed way that reflects the loving closeness, enjoyment, and self-sacrifice of the relationship between Christ and the church. So we can respond in that way, or we can say, God, I've tried your way for a really long time. I've been patient. I've been waiting but you haven't shown up and you haven't given me what I want and I feel like I've waited long enough. I feel like I've put, up, put in enough time that I deserve for you to give me what I wanted. Because you haven't shown up, I'm going to go ahead and do it my way. That is a sinful response in those desires. Our desires must be submitted to the will of God. God uses, again, these tests and trials in our lives to expose what it is that we love is it ourselves or is it God? Sin, excuse me, desire when it has conceived 
brings forth sin. That's the third step in our life cycle of sin, as we already mentioned. Sin is sin against God. It is sin that deserves punishment. It is sin that separates us from God. Every single person in this room, every single person on this planet has chosen our desires over the glory of God. We have chosen to love something else over God. And through that, we have sinned. We talked before about a response to trial. We looked at Job in particular, his response to trial. I want to go back to the book of Job and talk about a response to trial, but not Job's this time. I want to discuss the response of his wife. Job's wife had just been through the exact same things that Job had been through. She lost her wealth. She lost her security. She lost her servants. She lost her livestock. She lost her future, really. She had just got news that every single one of her children were dead. But instead of responding as her husband did, who said, blessed be the name of the Lord, in chapter 2, Job's wife, in words to her husband, says, curse God and die. Why do you hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. That phrase is striking. Curse God? But you see, this trial in her life exposed what she loved. While in Job's life it exposed that his hope was in his Redeemer, Job's wife had placed her trust and her affirmation in everything else that she wanted and the things that she had, things that were not bad. It's not bad to enjoy your family. It's not bad to enjoy wealth. It's not bad to enjoy success as God gives it. It is wrong to love that more than God. That is what we need to be careful of. And I know that we feel like, well, I would never say curse God and die. Like Job's wife, those words would never leave my lips. Maybe the words wouldn't leave our lips, but in our behavior and our attitudes, do we not say the same thing? Do we not say, God, I'm, I'm done. This has been too long. This has been too hard. If you really know, if you really knew how I feel, you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't have kept us up this long. I can't do this anymore. I can have no more. So whatever it is that I wanted that you're not giving me right now, forget your way. I'm doing my own thing. Is that not the same heart attitude as curse God and die? The final point in our life cycle of sin is death. The consequences of sin are not a slap on the wrist. They are not a fine. They are not probation. They are not jail time. They're not community service. They're not even purgatory. Sin, when it comes to be fully grown, brings forth death. And this is a death that is not just physical. This is a death that is spiritual. This is eternal separation from God forever and a hell that is very real. This is where sin takes us. Sin takes us all the way from temptation to death. And while sin takes us here, that is not where God leaves us. Finally, I want to look at one more illustration from the Bible. I want to look at our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, took his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed. And he said, watch and pray with me to his disciples. And Jesus, no less than three times, prayed to God, asking that this cup would pass from him. Let me link this to what we've just been talking about as far as our desires. Jesus wanted that cup to pass. Jesus had desires. What were his desires? He knew what was about to happen, that he was about to be betrayed by the only friends that he had on this earth. He knew that he was about to be wrongly accused. He knew he was about to be tortured. He knew he was about to be crucified. He knew he was about to take on the sins of the world. He did not desire to do those things and that they were going to be hard and difficult and uncomfortable. And he prayed in that way. Did Jesus sin? No, he did not. At any point, he did not sin. But what Jesus did as an example to us in his perfection and his not sinning He laid aside his desires for the will of God. Those immortal words that everybody knows, let this cup pass, yet not my will, but yours be done. The dark irony here is that Jesus, in laying aside his desires, paid for our inability to do the same. Jesus, in his perfection, because we are not willing to put put aside our desires out of our love for God, Our sin is why Jesus had to come and die. He laid aside his desires for comfort, which are not wrong, for ours. And in that, laying aside his desires, went to the cross, died for us, rose again three days later, so that we, while we've run around loving other things, can come back through faith and repentance to God And therefore, this life cycle of sin is broken. We don't have to stay in this life cycle of sin until death. Jesus inserts himself in that life cycle and offers us a way of salvation, offers us a way out, offers us the ability to choose to love God instead of to choose our own desires and our own sin, to love for ourselves. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he received the crown of life which God has promised to those that love him. Do not run away from the trials that are in your life. See them as God using them, which is exactly what they are. God using trials in your life to say, I know you're loving this, but it cannot give you what you want. This ends in death. Let me take this out of your hand, this thing that you're holding on to, this thing that you love, that you think is going to supply something for you, security, comfort, whatever it is you're looking for. Those things can only find their full fulfillment in me. Trials expose what we love so that God can take those things away from us and we can have more of himself in us. We have two choices when we come to these trials. Like Job's wife, we can say, curse God and die. Or like Job himself, we can say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to him through his word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.